0: Section 5 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1877-1884 to 1884. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 5. Rutherford B. Hayes, December 6, 1880 Fellow citizens of the Senate and House of Representatives, I congratulate you on the continued and increasing prosperity of our country. By the favor of divine providence, we have been blessed during the past year with health, with abundant harvests, with profitable employment for all our people, and with contentment at home, and with peace and friendship with other nations. The occurrence of the 24th election of Chief Magistrate has afforded another opportunity to the people of the United States to exhibit to the world a significant example of the peaceful and safe transmission of the power and authority of government from the public servants whose terms of office are about to expire to their newly chosen successors. This example cannot fail to impress profoundly thoughtful people of other countries, with the advantages which republican institutions afford. The immediate, general, and cheerful acquiescence of all good citizens in the result of the election gives gratifying assurance to our country and to its friends throughout the world that the government, based on the free consent of an intelligent and patriotic people, possesses elements of strength, stability, and permanency not found in any other form of government. Continued opposition to the full and free enjoyment of the rights of citizenship conferred upon the colored people by the recent amendments to the Constitution still prevails in several of the late slaveholding states. It has perhaps not been manifested in the recent election to any large extent in acts of violence or intimidation. It has, however, by fraudulent practices in connection with the ballots with the regulations as to the places and manner of voting and with counting returning and canvassing the votes cast been successful in defeating the exercise of the right preservative of all rights the right of suffrage which the constitution expressly confers upon our enfranchised citizens it is the desire of the good people of the whole country that sectionalism as a factor in our politics should disappear. They prefer that no section of the country should be united in solid opposition to any other section. The disposition to refuse a prompt and hearty obedience to the equal rights amendments to the Constitution is all that now stands in the way of a complete obliteration of sectional lines in our political contests. As long as either of these amendments is flagrantly violated or disregarded, it is safe to assume that the people who placed them in the Constitution as embodying the legitimate results of the war for the Union and who believe them to be wise and necessary will continue to act together and to insist that they shall be obeyed. The paramount question still is, as to the enjoyment of the fight by every American citizen who has the requisite qualifications to freely cast his vote and to have it honestly counted. With this question rightly settled, the country will be relieved of the contentions of the past, bygones will indeed be bygones, and political and party issues, with respect to economy and efficiency of administration, internal improvements, the tariff, domestic taxation, education, finance, and other important subjects, will then receive their full share of attention. But resistance, too, and nullification of the results of the war will unite together in resolute purpose, for their support all, who maintain the authority of the government and the perpetuity of the Union, and who adequately appreciate the value of the victory achieved." This determination proceeds from no hostile sentiment or feeling to any part of the people of our country or to any of their interests. The unviolability of the amendments rests upon the fundamental principle of our government. They are the solemn expression of the will of the people of the United States. The sentiment that the constitutional rights of all our citizens must be maintained does not grow weaker. It will continue to control the government of the country. Happily, the history of the late election shows that in many parts of the country, where opposition to the 15th Amendment has hereto before prevailed, it is diminishing and is likely to cease altogether if firm and well-considered action is taken by Congress. I trust the House of Representatives and the Senate which have the right to judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of their own members, will see to it that every case of violation of the letter or spirit of the 15th Amendment is thoroughly investigated, and that no benefit from such violation shall accrue to any person or party. It will be the duty of the executive, with sufficient appropriations for the purpose, to prosecute unsparingly all who have been engaged in depriving citizens of the rights guaranteed to them by the Constitution. It is not, however, to be forgotten that the best and surest guarantee of the primary rights of citizenship is to be found in that capacity for self-protection which can belong only to a people whose right to universal suffrage is supported by universal education. The means at the command of the local and state authorities, are in many cases wholly inadequate to furnish free instruction to all who need it. This is especially true where, before emancipation, the education of the people was neglected or prevented in the interest of slavery, firmly convinced that the subject of popular education deserves the earnest attention of the people of the whole country, with a view to wise and comprehensive action by the government of the United States, I respectfully recommend that Congress, by suitable legislation and with proper safeguards, supplement the local educational funds in the several states where the grave duties and responsibilities of citizenship have been devolved on uneducated people by devoting to the purpose grants of the public lands and, if necessary, by appropriations from the Treasury of the United States. Whatever government can fairly do to promote free popular education ought to be done. Wherever general education is found, peace, virtue and social order prevail, and civil and religious liberty are secure. In my former annual messages I have asked the attention of Congress to the urgent necessity of of a reformation of the civil service system of the government. My views concerning the dangers of patronage or appointments for personal or partisan considerations have been strengthened by my observation and experience in the executive office, and I believe these dangers threaten the stability of the government. Abuses so serious in their nature cannot be permanently tolerated. They tend to become more alarming with the enlargement of administrative service, as the growth of the country and population increases the number of officers and placemen employed. The reasons are imperative for the adoption of fixed rules for the regulation of appointments, promotions and removals, establishing a uniform method having exclusively in view, in every instance the attainment of the best qualifications for the position in question. Such a method alone is consistent with the equal rights of all citizens and the most economical and efficient administration of the public business. Competitive examinations in aid of impartial appointments and promotions have been conducted for some years past in several of the executive departments And by my direction, this system has been adopted in the custom houses and post offices of the larger cities of the country. In the city of New York, over 2,000 positions in the civil service have been subject, in their appointments and tenure of place, to the operation of published rules for this purpose during the past two years. The results of these practical trials have been very satisfactory, and have confirmed my opinion in favor of this system of selection. All are subjected to the same tests, and the result is free from prejudice by personal favor or partisan influence. It secures, for the position applied for, the best qualifications attainable among the competing applicants. It is an effectual protection from the pressure of importunity, which under any other course, pursued largely exacts the time and attention of appointing officers, to their great detriment in the discharge of other official duties, preventing the abuse of the service for the mere furtherance of private or party purposes, and leaving the employee of the government, freed from the obligations imposed by patronage, to depend solely upon merit for retention and advancement, and with this constant incentive to exertion and improvement. These invaluable results have been attained in a high degree in the offices where the rules for appointment by competitive examination have been applied. A method which has so approved itself by experimental tests at points where such tests may be fairly considered conclusive should be extended. To all subordinate positions under the government. I believe that the strong and growing public sentiment demands immediate measures for securing and enforcing the highest possible efficiency in the civil service and its protection from recognized abuses, and that the experience referred to has demonstrated the feasibility of such measures. The examinations in the custom houses and post offices have been held under many embarrassments and without provision for compensation for the extra labor performed by the officers who have conducted them, and whose commendable interest in the improvement of the public service has induced this devotion of time and labor without pecuniary reward. A continuance of these labors, gratuitously, ought not to be expected. And without an appropriation by Congress for compensation, it is not practicable to extend the system of examinations generally throughout the civil service. It is also highly important that all such examinations should be conducted upon a uniform system and under general supervision. Section 7053 of the Revised Statutes authorizes the President to prescribe the regulations for admission to the civil service of the United States and for this purpose to employ suitable persons to conduct the requisite inquiries with reference to the fitness of each candidate in respect to age, health, character, knowledge and ability for the branch of service into which he seeks to enter. But the law is practically inoperative for want of the requisite appropriation. I therefore recommend an appropriation of $25,000 per annum to meet the expenses of a commission to be appointed by the President in accordance with the terms of this section, whose duty it shall be to devise a just, uniform, and efficient system of competitive examinations and to supervise the application of the same throughout the entire civil service of the government. I am persuaded that the facilities which such a commission will afford for testing the fitness of those who apply for office will not only be as welcome a relief to members of Congress as it will be to the president and heads of departments, but that it will also greatly tend to remove the causes of embarrassment, which now inevitably and constantly attend the conflicting claims of patronage between the legislative and executive departments. The most effectual check upon the pernicious competition of influence and official favoritism in the bestowal of office will be the substitution of an open competition of merit between the applicants, in which every one can make his own record with the assurance that his success will depend upon this alone. I also recommend such legislation as, while leaving every officer as free as any other citizen to express his political opinions and to use his means for their advancement, shall also enable him to feel as safe as any private citizen in refusing all demands upon his salary for political purposes. A law which should thus guarantee true liberty and justice to all who are engaged in the public service and likewise contain stringent provisions against the use of official authority to coerce the political action of private citizens or of official subordinates is greatly to be desired. The most serious obstacle, however, to an improvement of the civil service and especially to a reform in the method of appointment and removal has been found to be the practice under what is known as the spoils system, by which the appointing power has been so largely encroached upon by members of Congress. The first step in the reform of the civil service must be a complete divorce between Congress and the executive in the matter of appointments. The corrupting doctrine that to the victors belong the spoils is inseparable from congressional patronage as the established rule and practice of parties in power. It comes to be understood by applicants for office and by the people generally that representatives and senators are entitled to disperse the patronage of their respective districts and states. It is not necessary to recite at length the evils resulting from this invasion of the executive functions, The true principles of government on the subject of appointments to office, as stated in the national conventions of the leading parties of the country, have again and again been approved by the American people and have not been called in question in any quarter. These authentic expressions of public opinion upon this all-important subject are the statement of principles that belong to the constitutional structure of the government. Under the Constitution, the President and heads of departments are to make nominations for office, the Senate is to advise and consent to appointments, and the House of Representatives is to accuse and prosecute faceless officers. The best interest of the public service demands that these distinctions be respected, that senators and representatives, who may be judges and accusers, should not dictate appointments to office. To this end, the cooperation of the legislative department of the government is required alike by the necessities of the case and by public opinion. Members of Congress will not be relieved from the demands made upon them with reference to appointments to office until, by legislative enactment, the pernicious practice is condemned and forbidden. It is therefore recommended that an act be passed defining the relations of members of Congress with respect to appointment to office by the President, and I also recommend that the provisions of section 1767 and of the sections following of the revised statutes comprising the Tenure of Office Act of March Second, eighteen 1867, be repealed. Believing That to reform the system and methods of the civil service in our country is one of the highest and most imperative duties of statesmanship, and that it can be permanently done, only by the cooperation of the legislative and executive departments of the government, I again commend the whole subject to your considerate attention. It is the recognized duty and purpose of the people of the United States to suppress polygamy where it now exists in our territories, and to prevent its extension. Faithful and zealous efforts have been made by the United States authorities in Utah to enforce the laws against it. Experience has shown that the legislation upon this subject, to be effective, requires extensive modification and amendment. The longer action is delayed, the more difficult it will be to accomplish what is desired, Prompt and decided measures are necessary. The Mormon sectarian organization, which upholds polygamy, has the whole power of making and executing the local legislation of the territory. By its control of the grand and petite juries, it possesses large influence over the administration of justice, exercising, as the heads of this sect do, the local political power of the territory, They are able to make effective their hostility to the law of Congress on the subject of polygamy and, in fact, do prevent its enforcement. Polygamy will not be abolished if the enforcement of the law depends on those who practice and uphold the crime. It can only be suppressed by taking away the political power of the sect which encourages and sustains it. The power of Congress to enact suitable laws to protect the territories is ample. It is not a case for halfway measures. The political power of the Mormon sect is increasing. It controls now one of our wealthiest and most populous territories. It is extending steadily into other territories. Wherever it goes, it establishes polygamy and sectarian political power. The sanctity of marriage and the family relation are the cornerstone of our American society and civilization. Religious liberty and the separation of church and state are among the elementary ideas of free institutions. To re-establish the interests and principles which polygamy and Mormonism have imperiled, and to fully reopen to intelligent and virtuous immigrants of all creeds, That part of our domain, which has been in a great degree closed, to general immigration by intolerant and immoral institutions, it is recommended that the government of the territory of Utah be reorganized. I recommend that Congress provide for the government of Utah by a governor and judges or commissioners appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate a government analogous to the provisional government established for the territory northwest of the Ohio by the Ordinance of 1787. If, however, it is deemed best to continue the existing form of local government, I recommend that the right to vote, hold office, and sit on juries in the territory of Utah be confined to those who neither practice nor uphold polygamy. If thorough measures are adopted, it is believed that within a few years the evils which now afflict Utah will be eradicated, and that this territory will in good time become one of the most prosperous and attractive of the new states of the Union. Our relations with all foreign countries have been those of undisturbed peace and have presented no occasion for concern as to their continued maintenance. My anticipation of an early reply from the British government to the demand of indemnity to our fishermen for their injuries suffered by that industry at Fortune Bay in January 1878, which I expressed in my last annual message, was disappointed. This answer was received only in the latter part of April in the present year, and when received, exhibited a failure of accord between the two governments. As to the measure of the inshore fishing privilege secured to our fishermen by the Treaty of Washington, of so serious a character that I made it the subject of a communication to Congress, in which I recommended the adoption of the measures which seemed to me proper to be taken by this government in maintenance of the rights accorded to our fishermen under the Treaty and towards securing an indemnity for the injury these interests had suffered. A bill to carry out these recommendations was under consideration by the House of Representatives at the time of the adjournment of Congress in June last. Within a few weeks I have received a communication from Her Majesty's Government, renewing the consideration of the subject, both of the indemnity for the injuries at Fortune Bay and of the interpretation of the treaty in which the previous correspondence had shown the two governments to be at variance. Upon both these topics, the disposition toward a friendly agreement is manifested by a recognition of our right to an indemnity for the transaction at Fortune Bay, leaving the measure of such indemnity to further conference, and by an assent to the view of this government presented in the previous correspondence, that the regulation of conflicting interests of the shore fishery, of the provincial seacoasts and the vessel fishery of our fishermen should be made the subject of conference and concurrent arrangement between the two governments. I sincerely hope that the basis may be found for a speedy adjustment of the very serious divergence of views in the interpretation of the fishery clauses of the Treaty of Washington, which, as the correspondence between the two governments stood at the close of the last session of Congress, seemed to be irreconcilable. In the important exhibition of Arts and Industries, which was held last year at Sydney, New South Wales, as well as in that now in progress at Melbourne, the United States have been efficiently and honorably represented The exhibitors from this country at the former place received a large number of awards in some of the most considerable departments, and the participation of the United States was recognized by a special mark of distinction. In the exhibition of Melbourne, the share taken by our country is no less notable, and an equal degree of success is confidently expected. The state of peace and tranquility, now enjoyed by all the nations of the continent of Europe, has its favorable influence upon our diplomatic and commercial relations with them. We have concluded and ratified a convention with the French Republic for the settlement of claims of the citizens of either country against the other. Under this convention, a commission presided over by a distinguished publicist, appointed in pursuance of the request of both nations by His Majesty the Emperor of Brazil, has been organized and has begun its sessions in this city. A Congress to consider means for the protection of industrial property has recently been in session in Paris, to which I have appointed the Ministers of the United States in France and in Belgium as delegates. The International Commission upon Weights and Measures – also continues its work in Paris. I invite your attention to the necessity of an appropriation to be made in time to enable this government to comply with its obligations under the Metrical Convention. Our friendly relations with the German Empire continue without interruption. At the recent international exhibition of Fish and Fisheries at Berlin, the participation of the United States notwithstanding the haste with which the commission was forced to make its preparations, was extremely successful and meritorious, winning for private exhibitors numerous awards of a high class and for the country at large the principal prize of honor offered by His Majesty the Emperor. The results of this great success cannot but be advantageous to this important and growing industry. There have been some questions raised, Between the two governments as to the proper effect and interpretation of our treaties of naturalization, but recent dispatches from our minister at Berlin show that favorable progress is making toward an understanding in accordance with the views of this government, which makes and admits no distinction whatever between the rights of a native and a naturalized citizen of the United States. In practice, The complaints of molestation suffered by naturalized citizens abroad have never been fewer than at present. There is nothing of importance to note in our unbroken friendly relations with the governments of Austria-Hungary, Russia, Portugal, Sweden and Norway, Switzerland, Turkey and Greece. During the last summer, several vessels belonging to the merchant marine of this country Sailing in neutral waters of the West Indies were fired at, boarded, and searched by an armed cruiser of the Spanish government. The circumstances as reported involve not only a private injury to the persons concerned, but also seemed too little observant of the friendly relations existing for a century between this country and Spain. The wrong was brought to the attention of the Spanish government in a serious protest and remonstrance, and the matter is undergoing an investigation by the royal authorities with a view to such explanation or reparation as may be called for by the facts. The commission sitting in this city for the adjudication of claims of our citizens against the government of Spain is, I hope, approaching the termination of its labors. The claims against the United States under the Florida Treaty with Spain were submitted to Congress for its action at the late session, and I again invite your attention to this long standing question with a view to a final disposition of the matter. At the invitation of the Spanish government, a conference has recently been held at the city of Madrid to consider the subject of protection by foreign powers of native Moors in the Empire of Morocco. The Minister of the United States in Spain was directed to take part in the deliberations of this conference, the result of which is a convention signed on behalf of all the powers represented. The instrument will be laid before the Senate for its consideration. The government of the United States has also lost no opportunity To urge upon that of the Emperor of Morocco the necessity, in accordance with the humane and enlightened spirit of the age, of putting an end to the persecutions, which have been so prevalent in that country, of persons of a faith other than the Moslem, and especially of the Hebrew residents of Morocco. The consular treaty concluded with Belgium has not yet been officially promulgated, Owing to the alteration of a word in a text by the Senate of the United States, which occasioned a delay during which the time allowed for ratification expired, the Senate will be asked to extend the period for ratification. The attempt to negotiate a treaty of extradition with Denmark failed on account of the objection of the Danish government to the usual clause providing that each nation should pay the expense of the arrest of the persons whose extradition it asks. The provision made by Congress at its last session for the expense of the Commission, which had been appointed to enter upon negotiations with the Imperial Government of China on subjects of great interest to the relations of the two countries, enabled the Commissioners to proceed at once upon their mission. The imperial government was prepared to give prompt and respectful attention to the matters brought under negotiation, and the conferences proceeded with such rapidity and success that on the 17th of November last, two treaties were signed at Peking, one relating to the introduction of Chinese into this country and one relating to commerce. Mr. Trescott, one of the commissioners, is now on his way home, bringing the treaties, and it is expected that they will be received in season to be laid before the Senate early in January. Our minister in Japan has negotiated a convention for the reciprocal relief of shipwrecked seamen. I take occasion to urge, once more upon Congress, the propriety of making provision for the erection of suitable fireproof buildings at the Japanese capital, for the use of the American legation and the courthouse and jail connected with it. The Japanese government, with great generosity and courtesy, has offered for this purpose an eligible piece of land. In my last annual message, I invited the attention of Congress to the subject of the indemnity funds received some years ago from China and Japan. I renew. The recommendation then made that whatever portions of these funds are due to American citizens should be promptly paid and the residue returned to the nations, respectively, to which they justly and equitably belong. The extradition treaty with the Kingdom of the Netherlands, which has been for some time in course of negotiation, has during the past year been concluded and duly ratified. Relations of friendship and amity have been established between the government of the United States and that of Romania. We have sent a diplomatic representative to Bucharest and have received, at this capital, the special envoy who has been charged by His Royal Highness Prince Charles to announce the independent sovereignty of Romania. We hope for a speedy development of commercial relations between the two countries. In my last annual message, I expressed the hope that the prevalence of quiet on the border between this country and Mexico would soon become so assured as to justify the modification of the orders then in force to our military commanders in regard to crossing the frontier without encouraging such disturbances as would endanger the peace of the two countries. Events moved in accordance with these expectations, and the orders were accordingly withdrawn to the entire satisfaction of our own citizens and the Mexican government. Subsequently, the peace of the border was again disturbed by a savage foray under the command of the chief Victoria, but by the combined and harmonious action of the military forces of both countries, his band has been broken up and substantially destroyed. There is reason to believe that the obstacles which have so long prevented rapid and convenient communication between the United States and Mexico by railways are on the point of disappearing and that several important enterprises of this character will soon be set on foot, which cannot fail to contribute largely to the prosperity of both countries. New envoys from Guatemala, Colombia, Bolivia, Venezuela and Nicaragua have recently arrived at this capital, whose distinction and enlightenment afford the best guarantee of the continuance of friendly relations between ourselves and these sister republics. The relations between this government and that of the United States of Colombia have engaged public attention during the past year mainly by reason of the project of an interoceanic canal across the Isthmus of Panama to be built by private capital under a concession from the Colombian government for that purpose. The treaty obligations subsisting between the United States and Colombia, by which we guarantee the neutrality of the transit and the sovereignty and property of Colombia and the Isthmus, make it necessary that the conditions under which So stupendous a change in the region embraced in this guarantee should be effected, transforming, as it would, this isthmus from a barrier between the Atlantic and Pacific oceans into a gateway and thoroughfare between them for the navies and the merchant ships of the world should receive the approval of this government as being compatible with the discharge of these obligations on our part and consistent with our interests as the principal commercial power of the Western Hemisphere. The views which I expressed in a special message to Congress in March last, in relation to this project, I deem it my duty again to press upon your attention. Subsequent consideration has but confirmed the opinion that it is the right and duty of the United States to assert and maintain Such supervision and authority over any interoceanic canal across the isthmus that connects North and South America as will protect our national interest. The war between the Republic of Chile on the one hand and the allied republics of Peru and Bolivia on the other still continues. This government has not felt called upon to interfere in a contest that is within the belligerent rights of the parties as independent states. We have, however, always held ourselves in readiness to aid in accommodating their difference and have at different times reminded both belligerents of our willingness to render such service. Our good offices in this direction were recently accepted by all the belligerents and it was hoped they would prove efficacious. But I regret to announce that the measures which the ministers of the United States at Santiago and Lima were authorized to take, with the view to bring about a peace, were not successful. In the course of the war, some questions have arisen affecting neutral rights. In all of these, the ministers of the United States have, under their instructions, acted with promptness and energy in protection of American interests. The relations of the United States with the Empire of Brazil continue to be most cordial and their commercial intercourse steadily increases, to their mutual advantage. The internal disorders with which the Argentine Republic has for some time past, been afflicted, and which have more or less influenced its external trade, are understood to have been brought to a close. This happy result may be expected to redound to the benefit of the foreign commerce of that republic, as well as to the development of its vast interior resources. In Samoa, the government of King Maletua, under the support and recognition of the consular representatives of the United States, Great Britain and Germany, seems to have given peace and tranquility to the islands. While it does not appear desirable to adopt as a whole the scheme of tripartite local government, which has been proposed, the common interests of the three great treaty powers require harmony in their relations to the native frame of government, and this may be best secured by a simple diplomatic agreement between them. It would be well if the consular jurisdiction of our representative at Apia were increased in extent and importance, so as to guard American interests in the surrounding and outlying islands of Oceanica. The obelisk generously presented by the Khedive of Egypt to the city of New York has safely arrived in this country and will soon be erected in that metropolis. A commission for the liquidation of the Egyptian debt has lately concluded its work, and this government, at the earnest solicitation of the Khedive has acceded to the provisions adopted by it, which will be laid before Congress for its information. A commission for the revision of the Judicial Code of the Reform Tribunal of Egypt is now in session in Cairo. Mr. Farman, Consul-General, and G.M. Batchelder, Esquire, have been appointed as commissioners to participate in this work. The organization of the reform tribunals will probably be continued for another period of five years. In pursuance of the act passed at the last session of Congress, invitations have been extended to foreign maritime states to join in a sanitary conference in Washington beginning the 1st of January. The acceptance of this invitation by many prominent powers gives promise of success in this important measure designed to establish a system of international notification by which the spread of infectious or epidemic diseases may be more effectively checked or prevented. The attention of Congress is invited to the necessary appropriations for carrying into effect the provisions of the Act referred to. The efforts of the Department of State to enlarge the trade and commerce of the United States through the active agency of consular officers and through the dissemination of information obtained from them, have been unrelaxed. The interest in these efforts, as developed in our commercial communities, and the value of the information secured by this means to the trade and manufacturers of the country, were recognized by Congress at its last session, and provision was made for the more frequent publication of consular and other reports by the Department of State. The first issue of this publication has now been prepared, and subsequent issues may regularly be expected. The importance and interest attached to the reports of consular officers are witnessed by the general demand for them by all classes of merchants and manufacturers engaged in our foreign trade. It is believed that the system of such publications is deserving of the approval of Congress, and that the necessary appropriations for its continuance and enlargement will commend itself to your consideration. The prosperous energies of our domestic industries and their immense production of the subjects of foreign commerce invite, and even require, an active development of the wishes and interests of our people in that direction. Especially important is it that our commercial relations with the Atlantic and Pacific coasts of South America, with the West Indies and the Gulf of Mexico, should be direct and not through the circuit of European systems and should be carried on in our own bottoms. The full appreciation of the opportunities which our front on the Pacific Ocean gives to commerce with Japan, China and the East Indies, with Australia and the island groups, which lie along these routes of navigation, should inspire equal efforts to appropriate to our own shipping and to administer by our own capital a due proportion of this trade. Whatever modifications of our regulations of trade and navigation may be necessary or useful to meet and direct these impulses to the enlargement of our exchanges and of our carrying trade, I am sure the wisdom of Congress will be ready to supply. One initial measure, however, seems to me so dearly useful and efficient that I venture to press it upon your earnest attention. It seems to be very evident that the provision of a regular steam postal communication by aid from government has been the forerunner of the commercial predominance of Great Britain on all these coasts and seas a greater share in whose trade is now the desire and the intent of our people. It is also manifest that the efforts of other European nations to contend with Great Britain for a share of this commerce have been successful in proportion with their adoption of regular steam postal communications with the markets whose trade they sought. Mexico and the States of South America are anxious to receive such postal communication with this country and to aid in their development. Similar cooperation may be looked for in due time from the eastern nations and from Australia. It is difficult to see how the lead in this movement can be expected from private interests. In respect of foreign commerce, quite as much as in internal trade, Postal communication seems necessarily a matter of common and public administration, and thus pertaining to government. I respectfully recommend to your prompt attention such just and efficient measures as may conduce to the development of our foreign commercial exchanges and the building up of our carrying trade. In this connection, I desire also to suggest the very great service which might be expected in enlarging and facilitating our commerce on the Pacific Ocean, where a transmarine cable laid from San Francisco to the Sandwich Islands, and thence to Japan at the north and Australia at the south, the great influence of such means of communication on these routes of navigation, in developing and securing the due share of our Pacific coast in the commerce of the world, needs no illustration or enforcement. It may be that such an enterprise, useful and in the end profitable, as it would prove to private investment, may need to be accelerated by prudent legislation by Congress in its aid, and I submit the matter to your careful consideration. An additional and not unimportant, although secondary, reason for fostering and enlarging the Navy may be found in the unquestionable service to the expansion of our commerce Which would be rendered by the frequent circulation of naval ships in the seas and ports of all quarters of the globe. Ships of the proper construction and equipment to be of the greatest efficiency in case of maritime war might be made constant and active agents in time of peace, in the advancement and protection of our foreign trade, and in the nurture and discipline of young seamen, who would naturally in some numbers mix with and improve the crews of our merchant ships. Our merchants at home and abroad recognize the value to foreign commerce of an active movement of our naval vessels, and the intelligence and patriotic zeal of our naval officers in promoting every interest of their countrymen is a just subject of national pride. The condition of the financial affairs of the government, as shown by the report of the Secretary of the Treasury, is very satisfactory. It is believed that the present financial situation of the United States, whether considered with respect to trade, currency, credit, growing wealth, or the extent and variety of our resources, is more favorable than that of any other country of our time, and has never been surpassed by that of any country at any period of its history. All our industries are thriving the rate of interest is low new railroads are being constructed a vast immigration is increasing our population capital and labour new enterprises in great number are in progress and our commercial relations with other countries are improving the ordinary revenues from all sources from the fiscal year ended june 30 1880 were from customs From Internal Revenue $124,009,373.92 From Sales of Public Lands $1,016,506.60 From Tax on Circulation and Deposits of National Banks $7,014,971.44. From repayment of interest by Pacific Railway Companies, $1,707,367.18. From sinking fund for Pacific Railway Companies, $786,621.22. From customs fees, fines, penalties, etc., 1,148,800 dollars and 16 cents. From fees, consular, letters, patent and lands, 2,337,029 dollars. From proceeds of sales of government property, 282,616 dollars and 50 cents. From profits on coinage, etc., $2,792,186.78 From revenues of the District of Columbia, $1,809,469.70 From miscellaneous sources, $4,099,603.88 End of section 5.